30 years ago in February, I was visiting my parents at the same time my oldest brother and his family were visiting. My brother was the director of the marketing, marketing and management department in the Walker School of Business at Appalachian State University. He mentioned this spider bite on his leg that wouldn't go away. He agreed that he should get it checked out. And I knew from my time working with older adults that you often go in for one thing and they find something else. On April 9th, he went to see his doctor who sent him directly to the hospital. Do not go home. Do not stop to gas up your car. I'm calling to let them know you're coming right now. Go right now. This to a man who was rarely sick. Word spread in my large family that he was in the hospital and we were all very concerned. He was there awaiting test and the results of test. I wanted to talk with him. I wanted to go see him. And yet the last thing that I wanted to do was make that phone call. Because what could I say to him? What would I say to him? What should I say? Because then it has to be faced that something was really wrong. And it was. He was diagnosed with lung cancer, which had already spread to some spots on his liver. The spot on his leg that he thought was a spider bite was a blood clot from the cancer in his lung. I did call him though. With dread but need, I drove from the Outer Banks of North Carolina to his home in Boone. He was there after his diagnosis before he started chemotherapy treatments. He was totally himself, funny, full of stories, taking care of the future, giving instructions to his wife and my other brother about what to do if he died. He was not in denial, but we thought we had time. 18 days after his diagnosis, April 27th, he had his first chemotherapy treatment in a hospital in Winston-Salem and was headed back to Boone the next day. That night, the blood clot in his leg moved to his heart. He died of cardiac arrest, but it was due to the cancer. We were devastated. He was simply the best of all of us. I tell you this not to make you sad or to make you feel sorry for me. I tell you this because I know that you too have your own stories of loss and grief. Sometimes expected and sometimes absolutely tragic. And if you have not experienced this, you will. Life is short and death is certain. Even knowing that, even knowing that, we still think we have time. Grief around death is not just about the sorrow that we feel at the absence of the person or people in our lives. <clears throat> It's also about the stories surrounding that death. Who was there? How we treated each other? How we behaved? The stories that were told? The vigil by the bedside? Or not being there when it happened? 
or the moment we receive the phone call, the hidden language of medical speak. I learned that when the doctors say, well, we can do this, 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 and this, or we can just keep them comfortable, that means that the person is most likely dying. A rabbi friend of mine says that death is like picking a hair out of a glass of milk. It's just that easy and just that gross. Right? Indeed, the lead up to death can be difficult and often gross, and the moment of death itself can be easy. The death of someone close to us, whether we feel close to them or not, shifts us, sometimes in large and sometimes in small, subtle ways, or at least it should, I think. The lead up to a person's death is not necessarily pretty, especially with a terminal illness, but when the dying finally accept their own death, are forced into it, the transition from this life to death can be much easier. One moment they are there, and the next they are gone, plucked from this life with a last gasp of air, a shudder of the body, the body still present, still warm for a while, but the life is gone from it. There's a book written by someone in another culture. I don't know the author, but it says that Americans think that death is optional. I find that to be rather true. We think if we exercise and we eat right, right? That somehow we can escape it. We do whatever it is we can do to keep death at bay, sometimes to the detriment of our quality of life. We think we have time. Part of good grieving and acknowledging sorrow is recognizing our own mortality. Recognizing that we too will experience many kinds of loss and that we too will die. Maybe that's life, the essence of it that we survive lo love and loss. To survive love and loss is the ultimate human dilemma. Not one of us escapes it. Psychotherapist and author Frances Weller writes that facing our sorrows is a gateway back into the breathing and animate world. Through the dark waters of grief, we can touch our unlived lives. There is, he writes, some strange intimacy between grief and aliveness. Some sacred exchange between what seems absolutely unbearable and what is most exquisitely alive. I have found this to be true as well. Sometimes it's little comfort, though, when we cry all night and all day or have to leave the grocery store because the sight of pecan pinwheels brings us to our knees, so great is our grief. 
that may not be pecan pinwheels for you, but it's something I know. Weller says that we are each as humans called to an apprenticeship with sorrow. We experience grief over death, certainly, but there are also many other large and small personal losses. And it is not just personal, but collective and cumulative. There is collective and cumulative grief of the world. Many of us are experiencing deep grief over the threat to our democracy and, the demo and democracy worldwide. Grief over climate change and the way life has changed over the past two and a half years. We long for things to go back to normal, but maybe we know deep down that there is no going back completely. We have changed, the world has changed. So much loss, so much grief. This is a sad time of year. In the five Chinese five transformations of energy, there are each, each, um, each energy, um, water, tree energy, fire energy, metal energy, soil energy has, um, is associated with a season. And this metal season is associated um, with grief, with crying. Nature speaks to us through the dying of the leaves. Oh, how beautiful the change. Oh, how beautiful the dying of the leaves, but also the sadness in this time of year. The only way through this is through it. We undertake an apprenticeship with sorrow. Loss and grief shape us in so many ways. It makes us who we are, defines us, ripens us, deepens us. This apprenticeship is about discovering the art and craft of grief. It takes outrageous courage to face outrageous grief. And yet that is what life calls from us and what life calls us to. In my hometown, when someone dies, church members and, and neighbors immediately bring food. Within a day, the kitchen is full. Sometimes, yes, these days, it's a bucket of chicken picked up on their way home from work. But often it is a homemade dish, a casserole, vegetables, pies and cakes, beans, potatoes, salads, breads, sometimes a breakfast, sometimes paper goods. You know you can count on it as surely as you know that there will be those who bring the dish who stay to visit, to offer hugs, to share stories, to wash dishes, to lighten the load. Did anyone else have this? Yes, I would like to see. I, yeah, thank you. Um, grief then becomes communal as well as personal because it touches us all. Perhaps even much of the grief that we carry is what we carry around, 
The grief that we carry is what is all around us these days, especially these days. And trying to escape it, it becomes larger and more twisted. What is important for us to understand as a religious community and as people of faith is that grief is shared and it's a spiritual responsibility. Facing our grief brings it out of the shadows for ourselves as well as the communities that we're part of. There's a part of me that thinks that grief feels so personal and part of me that understands that only I can do my grief work. And yet, deep down, I know that that may not be the healthiest way of grieving. The larger part of me knows that grief should not be carried in isolation, that we absolutely need one another for support as we move through this. We need to find ways of grieving together. Every cultural has rituals around grief, death, and loss. And this is one of ours. Some of you have brought your pictures, your objects, your mementos with you today. And next week, you're invited to do that as well. And next week, we'll, we will take part in a candle lighting for those who have left us. We call them our beloved dead. And I want to acknowledge to you, if it is helpful, that beloved can have many meanings, that we can call them beloved and still acknowledge their failures and their faults. Sometimes we use this term of the, about those who have gone before us, the great cloud of witnesses. Reverend Misha Sanders writes, you know how sometimes we call the ancestors our great cloud of witnesses? Well, if you find it comforting, you are totally allowed to know that dead people who did not love you well as living humans have now merged with great love and they are absolutely waving pom-poms and screaming from their and screaming their spirit guts out right now in your own personal great cloud of witness and this love this love is unconditional love and if you don't want them there in your great cloud of witnesses yet or even ever you are allowed to tell them to leave and they will because love honors consent all that to say that grief is almost always complicated. There's a depth of understanding, of knowing, of connection, a deep spirituality that happens when we acknowledge it, when we do ritual around it, when we recognize that grief is really ultimately daring us to keep loving and to love again and again and again. In mystery, we are born. In mystery, we live. And in mystery, we die. 